I want to invite you to have a seat as you do. I just want to introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the privilege to preach to you uh, from the ninth chapter of Hebrews. So if you're an adult and you want to jump to that, you can do that now. If you're not an adult and you want to leave, if you're ages, uh, what is it, three to five, yes, and then sixth to uh, fifth grade, uh, you can head out this way now if you've already gotten checked in. Blue Station and Gray Station. Um, what's, uh, what's the Blue Station learning this morning? They're going to be learning about the ten plagues. Some of you feel like you've faced that recently. <clears throat> I can assure you it wasn't as bad as these, what the children will learn about today. But you can ask them about what were some of the plagues. But you can also ask the older kids, Grace Station, about the New City Catechism. Man, we've been working through the New City Catechism for a long time back there. And these kids have gotten all the way to question 49. And the question that they're being asked this morning and taught the answer to is, where is Christ now? It's a great question. He died. We're going to be talking today about how his, his blood was shed for us. He died. He gave up his life for us. But where is he now? Is he still dead? No. He bodily rose from the grave on the third day after his death. And even now he is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his church. What an incredible, incredible real reality that they'll be learning about this morning. But what are we learning about? Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't have your copy of God's Word and you want to hold it in your own hand, you can turn to page 1192 in the hard black Bible in front of you. Feel free to use that today. 1,192. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, 1,193. So just on the other side of that, that, uh, that spread there. This morning we'll be looking at particularly verses 11 to the end of the chapter, down to 28. Before we get into that, I just want to kind of set the stage and ask you this question. Have you ever found yourself getting to know someone, and as you learned new things about them, they became more precious to you? Yesterday, I heard a young lady speaking about somebody that was very dear to me, and she said, when I first met her, I didn't really like her. But then again, that's how most of my great friendships begin. She went on to say about all the things that she began to learn about this new acquaintance. And it started out that she didn't like her, but as her relationship with her grew, as she began to know more things about her, her affection for this young lady grew. And she became, over the years, a very, very dear friend. But information that we learn about people will often change the way that we relate to them. Maybe we started out liking them, but we learned some new things about them, and we, eh, we prefer to be around other people. Maybe that's the story of you and your spouse. Me and Pastor Chris and many others offer marriage counseling. Uh, and so we'd be glad to assist you fill out a Connect card. I hope that as you have worked through the book of Hebrews together with our congregation, that your affection for Jesus has increased as you've learned new things about him. I hope that that's true. This morning, as we finish out chapter 9, I believe that you're going to see some new things. Maybe, maybe some old things that you've already known, but you'll see them hopefully in a new light. But even if they're not in a new light, you'll at least begin to love Jesus more as you meditate on the goodness that is our Savior. Let's look at verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a, of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, every week we want to stop and just ask you to do a work that we can't do. We've already confessed this. We confess it again. We're powerless to understand your word. We're powerless to understand you. We need your spirit now. And so, Father, all of us, we fall before you and we ask that you would teach us and that you'd instruct us. That we would have our hearts and our affections turned and changed to where we would love Jesus. We would know him better as we learn more about him. Father, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If I could give you the main idea this morning, this is the main idea that I see very clearly coming to the surface as we read 11 through 28 there in chapter 9. It's this, the sacrifice of the Son is superior in that it secures eternal redemption. The sacrifice of the Son is superior in that it secures eternal redemption. You might say, well, that sounds a lot like what we've looked at before when we talked about the high priest. Most assuredly, we looked at the high priest and we said that he is far superior. We read that. He's far superior. Why? Because he does secure an eternal redemption. But we looked at that diamond, as it were, through the angle of the priesthood. Well, then we moved on and we said, well, what about the, the, the covenant that the priest mediates? We turned the diamond a little bit and we said, well, hey, that new covenant, it is superior because it's mediated by the superior great high priest. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at turning the diamond one more time and seeing, well, many more times, but today one more time, to see that the sacrifice that this high priest makes, inaugurating this new greater covenant, is accomplished through a superior sacrifice. It's not just that the priest is better or that the covenant is better. It's that the sacrifice is so incredibly superior to any other sacrifice that you or I or any priest of history could have ever made. Last week particularly, we took a deep dive. Not too deep, but we, we looked extensively at the tabernacle and what it represented. This morning, we're going to see the the. The sacrifices that were accomplished there in the tabernacle for so long are similar to the sacrifice, the one sacrifice, that the great high priest Jesus makes on our behalf. It's very similar, and yet at the same time, vastly different. So I'm going to ask three questions of the text this morning. And luckily, or providentially, or just because I read the text, the answers, we'll find them. And so how are, how, is, how are the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrifices different than Jesus' one sacrifice? Number one, 
whose blood was it? Whose blood was it? Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Whose blood is it? It says it here clearly. It is the very blood of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. I want you to think about this. When God determined to save his people, when he determined to save his church, he did not send an angel. He did not sacrifice a goat. He didn't send a prophet. He sent his son, his one and only son, begotten of the Father. He sent his son. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 say, But when the fullness of time had come, when it was the right time, God the Father sent forth his son, born of a woman. He had become a man, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now we'll look at this on two levels. This idea that the blood of this covenant, the sacrifice of this covenant was the sacrifice, the life of the great high priest himself. On one level, I want you to just think about it relationally. Think about that relationally. What does it say to you that God the Father sent his only son to die on our behalf, to die in our place. On a silly level, maybe you've purchased a car recently. And as you were in the process of purchasing that car, you met a salesman that you thought you had become great friends with. That salesman had a keen interest in your life. You thought you'd become great friends, maybe even fast friends. Perhaps you had even added him to your speed dial. Some of you still use speed dial. One through nine, you put him at level four or five. He's there. He's there. You thought about inviting him to a cookout recently, but when you called him, there was no answer. So you call the dealership. Still, you're unable to get a hold of him. He's always busy. He doesn't want to call you back, and when he does call you back, it's actually not him, but he's sent somebody else to call on his behalf. How does that feel for you relationally? Well, it's a silly illustration, but I don't want you to lose the emotion and the, the relational factor here that when God determined that it was the right time to save you, he sent his son. He didn't send someone else. He sent his son. What an incredible emotional reality but not only is it emotional and relational it's also this blood of Christ it is effectual it's effectual blood must be shed this is a biblical principle without the shedding of blood those scriptures said that we just read without that shedding of blood there is no remission of sins there is no forgiveness of sins there is no atonement for sin a typical argument there from the lesser to the greater he says if the blood of bulls and goats can accomplish this and cleanse you physically how much more can the eternal blood of this the, the, the blood of the eternal son of god accomplish something how much more it's unfathomable if it can do that how much more can christ's blood accomplish on our behalf Look at verse 15, in reference to the blood of Jesus. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. We've talked a good deal about this new covenant. He says he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Notice there it says a death has occurred. We don't need a Bible verse to tell us this, and yet a Bible verse tells us the life of the flesh is in the blood. One of the things that's so concerning for us when we see blood, and some of us faint 
at the very sight or thought of it. And so I'll try to be careful here. Maybe you could hold up a towel or a shirt or jacket in front of you in case you pass out. But what makes us so worried is we know we need that blood. We need it. We go to the doctor and they say, it's time to take blood. And by the way, it is time for me to go have blood taken. And I'm putting it off. Pastor Chris, I'm putting it off. Why? Because I don't feel very fond of having the thing that I need to live being taken out of me. And I understand. It's helpful for me. It's good for me. But I know that the life that I have is in my blood. Since a death has occurred, Jesus died. How do we know that he died? His blood was shed. The blood that he needed for his own life, he gave up. Why? In order that he could become the mediator of the new covenant. Notice that word, mediator. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That word mediator, it has legal connotations. It usually refers to a delegate in a political dispute. Somebody that they send in, hey, let's, let's iron things out. Let's get everything you know, hunky-dory between these two parties. But it also could be a peacemaker in a business conflict. Maybe some business deal is about to go south, and they send a peacemaker in to, to make things right, to mediate peace. Jesus mediates peace for us by his blood. He brings peace between you and God. You cannot come to God any other way but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And in that way, Jesus is our mediator. He can reconcile us through his shed blood, through his life, back to the Father. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 uses the same word, mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The blood of Jesus help, allows him to serve as a mediator. What is his blood mediating? In a few weeks, we'll look at a passage that says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We won't preach that sermon too soon, but what sort of statement, what was declared by the blood of Abel? Do you remember the story? Cain killed his brother there in the field. And what did God say to, to Cain? The blood of your brother cries up from the ground. What did the blood say? What did the blood declare? Judgment. The soul that sins, it shall die. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. That's what it was declaring. What sort of declaration is being made by Jesus' blood? Is it condemnation? Is it judgment? Or is it the exact opposite? Is it mercy and grace? Peace being made between God and man. That's what his blood declares. Peace. It speaks a better word. What did Jesus give? He gave himself. What is meant by himself? His very life's blood. He gave it. Also want you to see there in verse 15 the word redeem. We looked at mediator. Let's look at the word redeem briefly. That relationship that Jesus establishes with us and God, that mediator relationship, it's also pictured as a ransoming relationship. That Jesus ransoms his people. What does it mean to ransom? It means to liberate. It means to deliver. It means to rescue. Jesus rescued us. He redeemed us. What did he redeem us from? From sin itself. I want you to think about this. That word redeem. It's part of the covenant promises that we see in Jeremiah that we've already looked at. It's this God giving you a new heart. Apart from the blood of Christ being applied to you, apart from that, you were dead in your sins. You were unable to not sin. You were unable to obey God. And yet, the blood of Jesus allows him to serve as a redeemer, as one who ransoms, purchases back, rescues. 
Let me ask you something. Has the blood of bulls and goats ever set you free from sin? Ever one time? We see this throughout Throughout the, the, the history of Israel, they, they sinned, they rebelled against God, they disobeyed him, they went after other idols, other gods, and what happened? A sacrifice was made, and what happened? They did it again. They were still in bondage. Still in bondage. And yet when Jesus' blood is applied, what does it do? What's well, the new covenant promise fulfilled in Christ? We are set free from sin. We are redeemed, as verse 15 declares, for us. You see, the old covenant, it just tells us about our sin. It just foretells and preaches forth the gospel that you'll one day be set free. But the new covenant, what does it do? Well, it actually accomplishes freedom. It gives us peace with God the Father, and it sets us free from sin. This is what the blood of Jesus accomplishes. So much different than any other sacrifice ever made. So let's keep going. Look at verse 16. To help us understand a little bit more about what's happening here, he introduces a new concept, this preacher. Verse 16, he says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood both the tent on, on both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Under the old covenant, a sacrifice had to be made. A death had to occur. And we're going to address that. That may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. We're going to get to that toward the end of the, our time together in the Word. But that's the reality. A death had to occur. The soul that sins, it shall die. The Father told Adam and Eve there in the garden, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Sin equals death. Sin brings about separation from God. It's just the reality that we live in. But here the preacher illustrates that, necessar that, that the necessity by bringing up a will, the, necess the, nece the necessity of someone dying. It's interesting that the word for covenant and the word for will is actually the same word in the Greek. Really what it means, you might say, well, a covenant is quite different than a will. And that's true, they are. Uh, but what, what, where they are similar is it's an authoritative laying down of what is to be done. The covenant says it's, it's an authoritative laying down of the rules. This is what's going to happen. If this happens, then that happens. It's the covenant. A will is the same way. When I die, so-and-so gets this, so-and-so gets that, so-and-so gets this, and the rest of you, you're dead to me. Right? A will is only in effect when the person who made the will dies. Now, that's how it works in most families. Apparently in my family, uh, those things can be determined and laid down, but you can go ahead and take them on credit before the testator or the, the person who made the will dies. I don't know if everybody else's family is like that, uh, but that is how mine works. And uh, there's a few of you here that are shaking your head, yeah? Under the covenant, though, there is no forgiveness of sins unless there is the shedding of blood. That's what we see. That's the same way in a will. There is no receiving that inheritance unless the person dies. Similarly, in the old covenant and in the new, there is no receiving of the benefit unless there is a sacrifice that dies. When a spotless lamb dies on your behalf, what do you receive in the Old Testament? Under the old covenant, you receive its physical cleanliness. You receive its spotlessness, as it were. You're considered clean. Show yourself to the priests so they can make a sacrifice and you can be called clean. That's what Jesus tells the lepers that he heals. Go show yourself. You're dirty now. You're still, you're still unclean. Go, a sacrifice will be made and you can be determined clean. But when the holy God-man dies on your behalf, what do you inherit? What is extended to you? His physical cleanliness? His physical spotlessness? Absolutely not. 
You receive his spiritual spotlessness. You receive his righteousness. When he dies, you receive his righteousness. Christ's entrance with his own blood means his sacrificial death on the cross. That's what's established in this relationship between us and the Father that Jesus mediates. It's how he obtained our eternal redemption, the shedding of his blood, which means his debt. That word redemption, it's again similar to ransom. It can also be translated liberation, deliverance. It's what the Jews were waiting for. They were expecting their Messiah to show up and deliver the nation of Israel from their enemies. That's what they wanted. They wanted deliverance. They wanted redemption. They wanted to be brought back. They wanted to be God's people again. They wanted to live in the land freely, worship God freely. Jesus comes, and what does he do? He does come and bring deliverance. He does come and bring redemption, but he does not bring it in the way that so many Jews were looking for. So many Jews even looking today. He brings it in freedom, deliverance from sin and from sin's penalty. What does the scripture teach us? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What sort of blood was shed in this new covenant? It wasn't the blood of a lamb. It wasn't the blood of a goat or a bull or a heifer or anything else. It was the blood of the high priest himself. So we ask the question, in this new covenant, there was a sacrifice. Blood was shed. Whose blood was it? It was the blood of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. But that's not the only way that this text is helping us to see that Jesus is superior in his sacrifice that he makes in the new covenant. There's another way. We have to ask the question, where was the offering made? We saw last week. In the tabernacle, the, high, the priest would come in and they would do their things there in the holy place. And then there, once a year, the, 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 the high priest would go into the most holy place and he would make a sacrifice for the people. Before that, having made a sacrifice for himself. Is that where the blood was brought, Jesus' blood, into the actual tabernacle or temple in his day? Well, look at verse 23. Where was the offering made? Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not into tents, not into temples, they're just copies of true things, it says. But Jesus Christ, he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Did you know that I've actually laid eyes on Herod's temple? Did you know that? You'd be proud of me. I've touched it as well. I've touched it. And you might think, wait a minute, 40 and 6 years was that temple being built? And then it was destroyed in 70 A.D. So how in the world did a 21st century Western Marylander touch Herod's temple? Well, I left a little detail out. It was only a model. It was a much smaller model. And yet I still touched it. I saw it. I beheld its glory. I couldn't actually get into it or anything. It was too small. But I saw it. Now, if there was an offering that would have been made there in that temple, is it the same, that model, is it the same as the real temple of Herod. No. Well, none of us would think that, not for a second. If we were to change metaphors, maybe a little distance would help us to see what I'm trying to bring across here, and that's a, a copy of something is not the same thing. Monopoly money is pretty cool, right? How many of you got a wallet at some point in your life, and you thought, I wonder if anybody will notice. I'll just put a couple hundreds, maybe a 500, slide it in there. Maybe... You know, at least I'll get some street cred. I won't try to spend it. Dad warned me about that. Monopoly money's cool and it has a purpose, but it's not the same thing as real money. In a similar way, the Old Testament sacrifices, they're cool. That's a little bit irreverent. They accomplished something, but they didn't accomplish what Jesus accomplished. They only pictured it in a small way. They were a model, a type. An antitype, much smaller, pointing to something far greater. Did Jesus make a sacrifice 
in the temple? Did he make a sacrifice in the tabernacle? No, he did not. The reality is, though Jesus cleansed the temple, he only cleansed the outer court. Jesus never entered into the holy place. Think about that. He never entered into the most holy place in Herod's temple. Not one time. And so where did he make that offering? Where was his sacrifice made? It was made in heaven. It was made in heaven. Everything we looked at last week was only an earthly copy of heavenly things. It makes sense that in the earthly, earthly copies of the heavenly things that there would be an earthly physical sacrifice. But in the heavenly realm, which is copied on earth, it makes sense to have a heavenly sacrifice. That's what Jesus is. And this point is brief, but it is important nonetheless. It was Jesus' blood that was shed, his own blood. And where was it poured out? Some altar in a tabernacle or temple? No, not here on earth. He mediated peace with God in heaven. Think about that. There's no other sacrifice that could truly be made and be effective here on earth. The sacrifice had to be one that could make it to heaven. The third question we'll ask as we move through this text and we try to understand how is it that Jesus' sacrifice is so much greater, well, we could ask, how long will it last? How long will it last? How good is this, how long is this sacrifice good for? Well, if it's the type of sacrifice that uh, Aaron's descendants would offer, it would be good for about a year. That's about it. Maybe less than that. What about Jesus's? Look at verse 25. Speaking of Jesus' blood sacrifice, it says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Keep this in mind. Jesus only made his offering, he only made his sacrifice one time. But that's all that was actually required. Everyone will die. That's what this passage says. Everyone will die. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, what? Comes judgment. So Christ, though, on the flip side of that, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Think about that. You will die, it says, and after you die, you will be judged. But Christ died, having no need for judgment having never sinned in any way, shape, or form, no semblance of rebellion against God and his heart, and yet he still died. Why? He died to pay for our punishment, our judgment. And now what is left? That's, this verse says, verse 28, what is left then? Is there any judgment left? No. Though it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, Jesus and all those who have placed their faith in him he will come again, but not to deal with sin, not to bring judgment for them, but instead to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For those who are in Christ, there is nothing left for Christ to accomplish on your behalf. It's already been done. He only is coming again to save us. What we have already been promised, what we have already tasted of and laid our hands on will finally be ours more fully. We'll see it, we'll taste it and touch it. We'll be saved from the very presence of sin as it's been promised. A few verses back, we read about a will. What's special about this is that we've received an inheritance, an inheritance from the will, as it were, of Jesus' death. 
Jesus died and he left us an inheritance. Maybe some of you have inherited something from a family member. I'm sure it's very precious to you. Maybe it's a grandfather clock or a chair or a brooch or, I don't know, maybe a rifle or some piece of furniture. Whatever it is, it's very special to you. But do you realize that you'll only have that piece of inheritance for a short time? And then there's a burden on you to do something with it. What is it? To create your own will. If it's lasted your life, if you've been able to keep it intact until the end of your life, you have a responsibility then, or your family will just fight over it, to make your own testament, to make your own will, and it'll be passed on. And so that possession, that thing that you inherited is a temporal inheritance. And that's another way that we see Jesus' sacrifice being superior. It's superior because it's a gift that we can receive. It's a gift that we can give to others. And yet at the same time, it is eternally ours. It's something that we can receive and never, it will never lose its value. It will never lose its effectiveness. No matter how many times we share it or give it away to somebody else, it will always eternally be ours. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice his inheritance for us is incorruptible. And he only had to do it one time. One time. This passage here, it clearly refutes any idea of multiple offerings of Christ. Clearly refutes that. There are so many Christian denominations, many of them cults, that would be confused about this. Thinking that Jesus' sacrifice has to be offered weekly, weekly, time after time, day after day, so that people can be saved. This is nonsense. The scriptures are so clear. His sacrifice was once and for all. Never to be repeated again. Not to be rude, but particularly the Roman Catholic Church. According to them, each Sunday, Jesus is sacrificed Thousands and thousands and thousands of times on thousands and thousands and thousands of Roman altars. And if that were true, Jesus' death would be as effective as those sacrifices under the Old Covenant. He sacrificed himself once and for all. Again, that's all that was necessary. His offering was good in heaven. And his offering is eternal. I just want to point something out for you quickly. We'll point this last piece out as we think of time and Jesus' sacrifice. We won't spend much time, but just if you have a pen, look down at verse 11. There's a word appear there by the root. Then you can also circle the word appear in verse 24. And you can circle it in verse 28. And notice something about those three instances of that word appear. There's three tenses. There's three times. What's the first one? Well, in verse 11, it's a past appearance. He's appeared in the past. But in verse 24, he's presently, he's in the present, right? Acting as a high priest on our behalf. Mediating the sacrifice that he's made once and for all. But then in verse 28, what does it say? He will appear again. He will appear again. What is this speaking to? Well, it's, it's telling us that, that Christ's present work is good in the past, it's good in the present, and it's good in the future. How, 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 one, one sacrifice? Wouldn't it be better to do what the Roman Catholics are doing and just, just to be safe? Call this a sacrifice every time, every, every week? Wouldn't that be safer? Why? There's no need. One, one sacrifice, past, present, and future, it's settled, it's done. <laughs> we, we talked a few months ago about the superior nature of Christ's work as a priest. Why would we go looking for another product when we have everything we'll ever need? Before we open the text this morning, we sang together, hallelujah, praise the Lord, all I have is Christ. <laughs> I don't need anything else. We do not need anything else. And so what does this passage have to, 
to say to us? What are we to do in response to this? I just really have two things to share with you. If we were to ask, so what? If you're taking notes, write down, so what? Well, the first thing that I would say comes out of this text for, for us, how does this change things for us? What does this call us to do? The first is to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of it. Before we talk about being ashamed, Christians being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I, I want to just address those of you in the room who wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. If that's you this morning, I, I just want to speak directly to you. The message of Hebrews 9, really the message of the Bible won't make a whole lot of sense to you if you don't believe in sin, if you don't believe in judgment, if you don't believe in morality that extends from God's person himself, then the gospel won't make any, any sense to you. And so if you're looking for like, hey, I'm trying to understand what Christians believe, but I don't really understand it. Well, it, 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 it has to start with this, that you are a sinner. The, the scriptures make that so very clear, that every single one of us are sinners. We, each of us have broken God's law. And, and the scriptures make it abundantly clear that we've broken God's law, and God's law requires payment for that that, that breaking of his law. Sin brings forth death. One of my favorite philosophers, you should check him out, C.S. Lewis. He says this. This might help you. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, he says, to say to people who don't, not, who, who don't yet know that they have anything to repent of and who don't feel they need any forgiveness. Christianity, he's saying, has nothing to say to you, nothing more to say to you, has nothing to offer you if you don't think you're a sinner, if you don't think you need forgiveness from a holy God. He goes on, it's after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. Christianity will not make sense to you until you get that first piece, that you have broken God's law. And that breaking God's law requires a payment. Before then, the gospel, the good news, really will mean nothing to you. Addressing Christians in the room. There is a danger for us to be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel says a lot of things about a culture. It says a lot of uncomfortable things. It says something about your neighbor who is a really good person, but they don't know Jesus. It, it says something about the children that are in your home that a lot of people don't really like. It says that we're all sinners and that we all need to be saved, and that you can't do it in and of yourself. It says, the gospel says that you'll die one day, and you know that you will, but after that comes the judgment. And so we scramble, and we say, well, let's, let's, let's maybe redefine. Maybe let's just ignore. Maybe we'll say things like, there is no judgment really coming. This is all that there is. Or maybe we'll say there is a judgment, but it's a scaled judgment. And, and that's what a lot of us like to think about. That's what a lot of religions throughout the ages have proposed for us, that there will be a scale and you'll have the bad deeds and the good deeds and we'll see which one weighs the most. And if, you, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you'll be good in the hood with God, right? That's, that's how things work. That's ridiculous. That's like saying I didn't kill 100 people, uh, but I did kill 99. And because I killed, I didn't kill uh, as many as I did kill, then that means that I'll go to heaven. What? Maybe, maybe we won't go so silly as to say it's a scale judgment, but we'll say it's a curve judgment. And we'll say things like the Pharisees said in Luke 18. God, thank you that you've made me a little better than that guy over there. I'm not as bad as them. Yes, I'm a bad person, but I'm not as bad as them. Or maybe we say things like, hey, I don't do what I see on the news every day. Those people are the bad people. I am one of the good people, even though I'm not perfect try to redefine the gospel. And really, Christians do the same thing. Whether you're an unbeliever or you're a Christian, we still look at these sorts of things, judgment, morality, sin, and we try to redefine them or we try to reshape them, try to change the rules as to what's actually sin and what's not, even though the Bible is incredibly clear. 
Why do we do that? Well, often because we're ashamed of it. But Christian, if you take the teeth, if you take the first step of the gospel away, then there's no need of the gospel at all. It doesn't make any sense to anybody. And so we can't be ashamed of the gospel. We, we have to declare to the world, regardless of whether it's the sort of sin that we're tempted to or that we think is utterly disgusting, we have to declare to all of us that God's wrath is upon those who sin against him and who have rebelled against him. And the reality is we're, many of us are ashamed of that. There's times in my life where I'm ashamed of that truth. God have mercy on me. The Apostle Paul speaks to this shame and he says, me, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul, help us out. Sometimes we're ashamed. Sometimes we don't want to tell our neighbor who's a really good person that if he doesn't turn to Jesus, the wrath of God is upon him for eternity. I don't want to tell him that. Well, Paul, what can we do? And he says, well, here's what I would tell you. I'm personally not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, everybody. It's the, it's the power of God to salvation. Paul, Paul, Paul tell me, that, that helps, but tell me a little bit more. I don't really understand it yet. And he says, well, in, in, in the gospel that you should not be ashamed of, in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, what does it mean The righteousness of God is revealed? Well, it means two things, really. One, it means that God is righteous. The gospel, when we look at the cross of Christ, we say, my goodness, God takes sin incredibly ser- serious. His, his own son was crucified. That's how serious God takes sin. That's the righteousness of God revealed. My goodness, that's how righteous he is. That's how holy he is. I'll never make it. Right. That's the first step. The righteousness of God is revealed. And it demands holiness. But that's not the only part of God's righteousness that's revealed. What's the other part? Well, it's what came to us so clearly in the Protestant Reformation. The great Martin Luther saw it. He said, wait a minute. The righteousness of God revealed is not his holy standard alone, but it's Christ filling that for me? That's what it is. Why should we not be ashamed of the gospel? Because, yes, it does tell your neighbor that if he does not repent, he will die and spend eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. But it's also revealing the righteousness of God in the person of Christ. That his blood was shed so that whoever would turn from their sins could receive forgiveness. And they would receive peace with God. They would literally be delivered from sin. Not just its penalty, but also its power in this life. So teenager, I want you to hear this. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the literal power of God unto salvation. You can't be saved. Your friend, your, your family, they can't be saved apart from it. Never be ashamed of it. Don't shrink back. Don't compromise. Don't delete words like sin or blood or cross or judgment. Keep them in your vocabulary because they're integral to the explanation of the gospel. The revealing of the righteousness of God both in his justice and in his mercy. John Stott, he writes this. The gospel contains some features so alien to modern thought that it will always appear folly to intellectuals. However... However hard we strive, and rightly, to show that it is true and reasonable. The cross will always constitute an assault on human self-righteousness and a challenge to human self-indulgence. It's scandal. It's a stumbling block, he says. It simply cannot be removed. Indeed, the church speaks most, most authentically to the world, not when it makes its shameful little prudential compromises. But when it refuses to do so, not when it has become indistinguishable from the world, but when its distinct light shines most brightly. Thus, Christian people who live under the authority of God's revelation, however anxious they are to communicate it to others, they manifest a sturdy independence of mind and spirit. Brother, sister, never 
be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. But that's not the only so what. Don't be ashamed, but there's more. Number two, and this is it, don't settle for a shadow of redemption. Don't settle for a shadow of redemption. Not that long ago, I saw a picture uh, uh, pop up on a screen. Actually, my wife found it and sent it to me, and it was a picture of one of my sons, and he was dressed like a gunslinger. And he was just a little, little tyke, and he even had a gun, and he's pointing it at the, at the camera. He lived his life like that. Many of you, you can relate. You used to have your own set of plastic side irons, kept always holstered, holstered, ready to roll. And when you were a child, that's really all you had. You had a toy. Some of them look really, really real, right? Some of you guys are into airsoft, and you, man, that, that that looks real. But it's still just a toy. It's something that you use to fight the imaginary cattle rustlers and warring Indian parties. But when you become a, a, an adult, you sort of put away those things, right? Well, most of us do. If I could transition from this picture to reality, to this challenge, to not settle for a shadow of redemption, I would tell you it's, it's time to put away the toys and to get the real thing. The old covenant. I don't mean to be demeaning, but it only is a picture of what's to come. And then Jesus comes and fulfills everything from the old and everything in the new in one sacrifice. And I would tell you this morning, it's time to stop playing around with the old covenant. Trying to earn something on your, on your, on your own. It's time to come to Jesus. It's time to receive forgiveness. It's time to really rest in that new covenant where he promised that he'd give you a new heart. He'd give you a new mind. He would be your God and you would be his people. Some of you, you're satisfied just to play with that play set and not really have the real thing. You don't mind that your relationship with God is superficial. You don't mind that you truly don't have power over sin. You don't mind that people only think your religion is real, but it's actually fake. You're okay to just hang out in the tabernacle, the earthly one. A passage comes to mind as I think about this, the sad, sad state that so many of us find ourselves in. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 to 28, Jesus offers some terribly sobering words. He uses the word woe, and it doesn't mean woe. It's pity. It's sorrow. It's condemnation, really. If you don't wake up, you are in deep, deep trouble. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup, and you clean the outside of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Hmm. Verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I don't need to give an illustration of what he's talking about here. It's an incredible, incredibly clear illustration. He's saying some of you, you look more like a dirty cup, that you've done a really good job of cleaning the outside up. So that while you drink from a dirty cup, people think that you're drinking from a good clean cup. And he's talking about those who would run to the Old Testament. They'd run to the old law. They would magnify and multiply the laws. Why? So that people would look at them and say, man, look how clean that cup is. There they are just playing with a little six-shooter pistol on the corner of the street, acting like they've really got something. And he's saying, you're a hypocrite. And really, this is a kindness. You say, Jesus is a jerk. Well, this is the kindness. He's calling people to say, aren't you tired of this hypocrisy? Aren't you tired of this fakeness? The scriptures say this. These kind of guys, people who act like them, they have a form of godliness. 
They have a, a manifestation of godliness. They have a mask of godliness, but they actually are denying its power. They're denying its power. They're like a coffee cup that's filthy on the inside, but clean on the outside. And I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where you're at. But I just want to call you to the real thing. We don't have to pretend that one day we can be forgiven. We don't have to pretend that one day we'll be made new and, and all that. We can really experience that today. We can really, truly be, ha, experience peace with God. We can truly be redeemed from the power of sin, rescued from it. We don't have to just parade around on social media hoping that people will see this fake mask and filter and think that we've got everything together, we can truly confess our faults to one another. We don't have to hide behind busyness, thinking that maybe they'll think I'm a good person because I'm so busy. We can truly just rest in Christ. Can I really let people know who I am? Can I really take the masks off? Absolutely. Why? Because the new covenant says that he is making all things new. One of the challenges that we face when we find ourselves focusing more on the outside of the cup than the inside of the cup is that we have to reveal to God and to other people. We have to admit to ourselves that what we are on the inside is really what we are. We have to let people see that. Which, by the way, that's what every single Christian that's ever been baptized is saying. Look how sinful I am. Look how terrible I am. But God's been so kind, and he's washed me. He's washing me right now. And this water is a picture of that. I'm going to get washed. I'm going to get help. I'm going to get made new. I'm going to come to Jesus. I'm really going really to receive and trust his salvation that he offered on the cross. So I don't know who you are, moms and dads, single person, teenager, unbeliever, whoever you are. I just want to invite you into this reality that you can truly receive salvation. You don't have to parade around. You don't have to just embrace the fact that the outside's dirty and the inside's dirty. You don't have to clean up the outside so people think you're clean on the inside. You don't have to do any of that nonsense. You come to Jesus, and he cleanses the inside of the cup, and he cleanses the outside of the cup. And he does that by the blood of his sacrifice. I don't know what you know about Jesus, what you knew about him before you got here this morning. But here's what I think about the stuff that we just talked about. I've just learned a little bit more about Jesus. And you know what happens to my affections for him? It's not like that person that you just found out they did this and you don't really like that, so you don't want to hang out with them. Your, you know, love, your affection for them begins to, to wane. I, I hope that as we've looked at this text this morning, that you've seen Jesus a little bit more clearly and your love for him has just grown. And that you want to spend more time learning about him. I, I hope that's your prayer. And if it is, you're in luck because we've got a lot more work to do in this book of Hebrews. But before we close down, I want to just bring your attention to verses 11 and 12. We didn't even work through those. But really, 11 and 12 are, are, are a summary of everything we've just talked about. So what sort of things have we learned about Jesus that might stir our affections for him? Well, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, a new covenant that's been promised that's come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not an earthly one, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's the main idea this morning. What do you need to walk away with? The sacrifice of the Son is superior in that it secures eternal redemption. Let's pray. Father, you've been so kind to us to allow us to see throughout the Old Testament that through the following of the Mosaic law, the laws of purity and of sacrifice, you demonstrated through all of these things your own holiness. You, you clearly preached to us that we can't approach you unclean. We can't approach you in our brokenness. We can't approach you with sin or even with the effects of sin in our lives. That's what you've taught us. In your mercy, in your kindness. And yet, 
you've also fulfilled what these lesser earthly things point to. That Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundations of the earth, as it were, has made a way for us to be made right with you. To be at peace with you. To be delivered from sin, the sin that separates us, the sin that ensnares us. Father, thank you for this. Father, help us to look to Jesus and as we do, let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And Father, we ask again, would you save someone here this morning? Would someone see Jesus and run to him and receive the sacrifice that he has made on their behalf? We ask this boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen.